Now this morning, as we come to the book of Galatians chapter 4, it's helpful for us to remember that the chapter and the verse divisions in the Bible weren't put in there by the original authors. Paul, the apostle, didn't write Galatians chapter 1, 2, 3. He just wrote a letter to the Galatians in paragraphs and sentences. I think it's good, and we're thankful that somebody came along at a later time and broke it up into chapters and verses, but it doesn't always give us a, a clean break. Sometimes they put in a chapter division right in the middle of an idea. And that's what they've done with the beginning of Galatians chapter 4. Paul has been talking about our place as sons and daughters before God. And he's going to uh, play many different themes off of this idea. So we begin here in verse 1 of Galatians chapter 4. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Now in the last verse of Galatians chapter 3, Paul introduced us to the idea that because we belong to Jesus Christ, we are the spiritual descendants of Abraham, the great man of the Old Testament. And if we're spiritual descendants of Abraham, then we are heirs according to the promise. And now in verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul's saying, well, let's play with that idea that we're heirs. Let's, let's have a little uh, uh, understanding of what that idea can mean. And first of all, he paints the picture of a wealthy ancient household with a young boy who's destined to inherit everything that the father has. Now, when the boy is just a child... He has actually less day-to-day freedom and responsibility than a high-ranking slave in the household. Yet he's destined to inherit everything, and the slave isn't. I mean, think of a wealthy home where you have a, a butler and a small child. The small child is the only son of the parents, and he's destined to inherit everything. He's going to get the family business and the property and all the assets. He's going to be a very wealthy, powerful man. It's his inheritance. But he's only five years old. So the butler has more day-to-day freedom. butler can get in the car and drive around. You won't let the kid do that. The butler can do all sorts of things that the child can't. You might say that the butler has more freedom day-to-day, but the big difference is that the child has a destiny that the butler does not have. So now Paul paints the picture here, verse 3. He says, even so, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. Before we came to Jesus Christ, we were in a bondage. But now it's different. Now we've come to a place of greater maturity. We've come to a place of different understanding. And this bondage that we used to be in, we're set free from now. Now I find in verse 3 of Galatians chapter 4, one of the most interesting phrases in the whole New Testament. And I hope I can make it half as interesting to you as it is to me. Where Paul says... Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. That phrase, elements of the world, is a very engaging phrase. What does Paul mean by it? Well, first of all, notice our relation to the elements of the world. Before we were in Jesus Christ, we were in bondage to the elements of the world. The elements of the world have a power to bind us, to restrict our freedom, our liberty. But when we're in Jesus, that bondage should be broken. Okay? But it doesn't tell us what the elements of the world are. 
what is he talking about? And you think of the periodic chart of elements that you studied when you were in school, right? Was it we were in bondage under uh, gold and mercury and libidinium and, and, uh, and oxygen? And, uh, no, that's not what he's talking about. When you get into the meaning of the original words that Paul wrote, and Paul wrote in an ancient version of the Greek language, the idea behind the words that he uses is the rudimentary principles of the universe, the ABCs of the universe. What he has in mind are fundamental principles or building blocks that sort of motivate and, and operate throughout the whole universe. And Paul says that we were in bondage to those things. Now, what possibly sort of elementary principle is there in the whole universe that we were in bondage before, before we came to Jesus Christ? Well, let me see if I explain it to you. I I believe that what Paul is talking about is the basic law of cause and effect. Now, how does that apply spiritually, the law of cause and effect? Well, you get what you deserve before God, right? When you're a good boy, then God treats you good. When you're a bad boy, God treats you bad. You can call it karma. You can call it you get what you deserve. You can call it what goes around, comes around. Or whatever you want to call it, it rules the minds and the hearts and the natures of men. We live under the idea that we get what we deserve. When we're good, we deserve to receive good from God. When we're bad, we deserve to receive bad from God. Now, Paul tells the Galatians, you used to be in bondage to this. Friends, can I tell you that to live that way before the Lord is bondage? Because that's based... A relationship with the Lord on your own works, on your own efforts. When I'm a good boy, God loves me. When I'm a bad boy, God hates me. That's the ABCs of the universe. That's a cause and effect idea. Now, can I tell you that in a broad sense, we don't do away with what Paul calls here, verse 7, the elements of the world. We don't do away with them. Because in normal everyday life, they certainly have a place, don't they? Try this experiment, if you will. Go to work tomorrow on Monday, and instead of normally doing your work, kick back at your desk. Bring a television. Say, uh, you know, listen to the radio all day. When the boss comes and brings some, puts in your in file, just ignore it. Just kick back and have a good time at your desk all day. Then, when your boss or your supervisor comes by and says, well, why aren't you working? Just tell your boss, bro, I'm not under works anymore. It's all the free gift of grace. And so I expect that when you fill out the paycheck at the end of the work, it'll just be a gift of grace. Boss, I have two words for you. You're fired. (laughs) Because in normal day-to-day life, we understand this principle of you get what you deserve, right? And we try to build this within our children. Work hard. Be a a good person. Make a a contribution to this world. Be that kind of person who does that. But when it comes down to our relationship with God, that thinking is poison. Because it'll make you want to justify yourself before God instead of receiving the justification that Jesus Christ can bring. And Paul tells us that the Galatians had to go beyond this ABC of the universe into an understanding of God's grace. Grace contradicts the ABCs of the universe because it's not cause and effect. You see, under grace, God does not deal with us on the basis of what we deserve. Our good cannot justify us. Our bad need not condemn us. 
God's blessing and favor is given on a principle completely apart from the elementary principles of the world. His blessing and favor is given on the basis of reasons that are in him and not in us. So he says, free yourself from that. Now you want to see how glorious the liberty can be? Look at it here in verse 4. He says, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. God saw the condition of the human race in bondage under the law, under the elementary principles of the universe. And God said, I'm going to send forth my son to bring redemption into the world. Look at it there, verse four. It says, when the fullness of the time had come, God knew the exact right time. Does it ever strike you strange that God waited so many thousands of years into human history to send Jesus? I mean, why didn't it happen where Adam and Eve did their thing And then just the next generation, the Lord sent Jesus. You think that would have fixed a lot, right? God knew what he was doing. He knew exactly the right time. And we could go on and talk about economic and political and social and linguistic and all these different kinds of situations that prove why it was the right time. But we don't even have to do that because Paul tells us it was when the fullness of the time had come. It was when the time was right. God always knows the right timing. He's never too early. He's never too late. Sometimes we think he's too late. But it always proves out God knows what he's doing with his timing, doesn't it? And so when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Isn't that a marvelous sort of vague reference to the virgin birth there? He doesn't say born of a man. Born of a woman. That we might receive, he says, excuse me, verse 4. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. In other words, to redeem us out of this slavery. He looked at people, they were in bondage and the elementary principle of the world. God says, I'm going to buy them out. I'm going to purchase them out from under that slavery. We're redeemed, bought out from the slave market. Friends, I think that this is something that just needs to sink down deeper and deeper into our hearts. If you're tired of hearing that Jesus Christ redeemed you out of the slave market, say, yeah, yeah, I heard that a while back. What else? You need it down deeper into your heart. You don't need less of it. You need more of it. It should make us constantly filled with wonder and amazement and gratitude to God that he redeemed us. We should almost be rubbing our eyes and cleaning energy. You mean he really did that? He did it. I'm redeemed. He bought me out of the slave market. You know, a man who never forgot about that prince was a man named John Newton. He's the fellow who wrote that great hymn, Amazing Grace. His life really was a demonstration of amazing grace. He, he was born into a regular family, but his mother died when he was just a young boy, only seven years old, and he lost his mother. His father was a hard man. And so when he was only 11 years old, John Newton ran off and started his career as a sailor on these great old ships that would sail over. And then as the years went on, he made his way, and he was involved in the slave trade. Horrible, horrible sin and degradation his life was filled with. Until finally one day when he was uh, off on a ship off the coast of Newfoundland, the ship was in a terrible, terrible storm and almost sinking, and he couldn't swim. He cried out to God for mercy, and God heard him. And he was saved, miraculously, marvelously saved. God did a marvelous change in his life. He eventually became a pastor. He eventually made a huge impact on the world. But 
One of the things that John Newton did was in his study, in his office, where he prepared his messages, in the fireplace that was there in his office, he put an engraving, a wood carving of a scripture phrase over the the fireplace that he could see it all the time. And this is what it said. He quoted Deuteronomy 15.15, where it says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. He wanted to see that every time he went into his study. Remember that you were a slave and remember that the Lord redeemed you. Well, this is the glorious truth here of verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law. And if we keep fresh in our mind what we once were and what we are now in Jesus Christ, we're going to do well. Our Christian lives will be filled with a gratitude and a power and a reliance upon God. Now, if it can get better than redeemed, it certainly does here in verse 5. Look at it again. To redeem those who are under the law. And then now look at the second part of the verse. That we might receive the adoption as sons. This is amazing. I mean, wouldn't it be enough that we're purchased out of the slave market? Here's your picture. You're you're a slave. Beaten, bloody, chained. You're up there on the auction block. And people are bidding for you. People call out this price, that price. An examiner comes and opens your mouth and checks your teeth and you're you're handled roughly and rudely. It's a horrible, degrading spectacle. And there's two people bidding on you. One man wants to hire you and he's a cruel, cruel master. And he wants to punish you and degrade you. And you'd be a living hell to work for this master. But then another man comes along and it's Jesus Christ. He says, I'll buy this man. I'll pay any price. I'll pay the ultimate price. I'll buy this man and he takes you. And not only does he come and unlock your shackles and say, you're a free man now. You're in my service, but you're a free man. Not only does he do that, but then he looks you square in the eye and he says, and I'm going to adopt you as my son. That's almost mind-numbing, isn't it? It's enough to be set free from the slave market. But now he says, you're going to be in my family as my son. Do you understand that there's a sense in which this is a totally unnecessary blessing that God's given us in the course of salvation? He didn't have to make us his sons and his daughters to save us. But he did it because he loves us. Because he wants to have that kind of relationship with you and with me. You can picture somebody going so far as saving somebody and rescuing them and helping them and doing everything they can, but not going so far as to say, you're my son. That's what God did for us. He wants you and his family. He wants you to live as a son and a daughter, not as a slave any longer. Now, it's probably worth it to deal with a question that may come up in somebody's mind during a a passage of Scripture like this. The question is simply, well, wait a minute. How can Paul say that we become sons of God, I thought we were all children of God. I mean, isn't that one of the great principles that that we're supposed to believe in? That the whole human race, we're all God's children? Well, biblically speaking, you'd have to say yes and no. I mean, is it true that all human beings are God's children? Yes, in the sense that we're all uh, creations of a, or creatures of a common creator. He created us. The Bible says in Acts chapter 17 that we are his offspring and and we each one of us, we have a a line of descent from God. We're, We're all his children in that broad sense that we all share a common creator. But if you want to talk about spiritual heritage, if you want to talk about spiritual relationship, the Bible tells us something that's 
it's almost too strong for our ears. The Bible tells us that there are children of God, and it tells us that there are children of the devil. Again, I'm not making this up. Jesus said it. John chapter 8, verse 44, he speaks to the the religious elite of his day, and he looks at them point blank and he says, you are of your father the devil. Now at that moment, Jesus wasn't saying that all everybody in the world is a child of God. You know, some people are children of God, he says, some people are children of the devil. I, I know that that sounds very hard. And maybe some people will say, well, who are you to call me or, or my relatives or my friend a child of the devil? You have no place to do that. The, the first thing I would say is, first of all, it's not my place to call anybody a child of the devil. That's, that's God's and God's alone place. I, I don't have any business saying that. It's just, what do the scriptures say? That's what's important. My opinion, your opinion, doesn't really matter. It's what God says that matters. Number two, I'd say, if you're uncomfortable with the idea that somebody might call you a child of the devil, fix it. Come to Jesus Christ. I mean, the door's wide open. You can have this adoption as sons. Verse 5, to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. It's open to everybody. God's not being exclusive. God's not saying, well, I have my favorites and the rest. They can just perish. No. God says, come unto me. Come. Whoever hears, come. Nobody's to be excluded. You can come right now. You can have the status as a son or a daughter of God right now yourself. It's up to you. You come and you surrender your life to Jesus Christ. In this sense, God opens up the doors wide that all can come and be his unique children in a spiritual sense. And it's really something not for us to know as a status, but for us to enjoy as an experience. The status of sons and daughters of God, that's something that we receive from Jesus Christ, isn't it? But the experience of it, that's a work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Look at verse 6. He says, and because you are sons, right? You already have the status. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Isn't that glorious? You've got the status as a son or a daughter of God. Now God says, I want you to experience it. And I'm sending forth my spirit that he'll cry in your heart, Abba, Father. What does it mean, Abba, Father? Well, it's not that Swedish pop group from the 70s. No, it's an Aramaic word essentially meaning daddy or papa. It means father, but in the endearing way that a child would cry it out. It's the difference between saying, good morning, father, and I love you, daddy. A difference between the two, isn't it? And God gives us the right to come to him and say, I love you, Daddy. To cry out to him, Daddy, to God the Father. Even as Jesus had that access, Jesus prayed, Abba, Father. It's recorded in Mark chapter 14, verse 36. And now we can come and say, Daddy. We can say, Abba, Father. I mean, we get to uh, call God the Father, the sovereign Lord of eternity, Daddy. I suppose it's possible for someone to address God disrespectfully in this way, to sort of mouth off with a a too great of a familiarity, the way sometimes children will towards their parents. But we should never deny ourselves the intimacy and the affection that this expresses. God wants you to have a daddy kind of relationship with him. It's just one little word, Abba, but it means so much. 
It means that we can call out to God with the dependency and the affection and the love and the reliance that a little child has upon their father. And that's sometimes the most eloquent thing that a person can say. Oh, you can spin out great words and phrases and all these majestic things and, and 14-syllable words and all this. But is there anything more eloquent than the child of God calling out to God and just saying, Abba, Daddy? Don't you love how Paul puts it here? Look at it again in verse 6. God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. You don't have to whisper it. You don't have to say it like you're ashamed to say it. You don't have to say it haltingly or stutteringly. Or No, you don't have to stammer. You can cry out with certainty and unwavering confidence. It doesn't matter. You can cry out. This is a place of boldness and security that's God giving you. He wants you to have that kind of assurance, that kind of confidence in your relationship with God the Father. Martin Luther said something wonderful. He said, let the law, sin, and the devil cry out against us until their outcry fills heaven and earth. The Spirit of God outcries them all. Our feeble groans, Abba, Father, will be heard by God sooner than the combined racket of hell, sin, and the law. He hears us when He calls, when we call. So how can we have this assurance? How can we have this relationship? Look at it again at verse 6. God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts. That's what provides this. We know that we are sons and daughters of God by the witness of the Holy Spirit within us. Do you want that? First you've got to see, do I have the status as a son or a daughter? That's by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Next, it's, do I have the experience of it? And that happens by a gift from the Holy Spirit. You seek God for it, ask Him for it. I'm sure He'll give it to you this morning. Romans chapter 8, verse 16 says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. God wants to touch your heart with that this morning. To give you an understanding of the status of a son of God and the experience of a son of God. Because look at the truth here, verse 7. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Isn't it beautiful? Slaves are never sons. Sons are never slaves in their father's house. No. Jesus illustrated this beautifully in the parable of the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal when he was returning home? What did he say? He'd say, well, my father's slaves. They have it better than I do. I'll go back and be a slave for my father. It's better. I don't even want to come back as a son. I'll say, father, I'm not worthy to be your son. Just let me come back as as a hired slave. Father wouldn't let him do it, would he? Father came and said, you're not going to be a slave in my household. You're my son. God looks at you here this morning and says, I don't want you to have a slave kind of relationship with me. I want you to be my son, my daughter. And realize that if you're a son, then you're also an heir. You're in line for a majestic inheritance. I mean, the greatest inheritance. The riches of the world can't compare to it. Look at your inheritance in verse 7. Then an heir of money through Christ. No, no. An heir of property, an heir of gold, an heir of, uh, heir of silver. No, an heir of what? An heir of God. That's your inheritance. Your inheritance is to know God and to have Him forever in eternity. Now, if any of you are going, oh, that's my inheritance. And you don't understand God. You don't know Him. You need more love, more appreciation, more understanding of who God is. It's the greatest inheritance God could give anyone. 
Starting with verse 8, Paul having laid out so beautifully this, this destiny that we have. We're sons, we're not slaves. Then he puts before us and the Galatians a choice to make. Look at it here, verse 8. He says, but then, indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not God's. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I've labored for you in vain. Paul says at one time you were in bondage. You were in this bondage when you did not know God. Bondage under the elementary principles of the world, as he says in verse 9, the weak and the beggarly elements. Now you were in that bondage before you knew God. Now you've come to know Him and look what you're doing. He says you're turning again. Verse 9, you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements. Friends, this sort of going back into a legalistic relationship, this business of, of finding our approval by God by the attendance chart in heaven or the, the whatever we can do before Him. No, that's going backwards. It's not going forward. It's turning back to what it was before we knew God. Back to, as he says in verse 9, the weak and beggarly elements. He uses the same word for elements that he did earlier in the church. You're going back to the ABCs of the universe. You want that cause and effect relationship. Friends, I guess what I'm trying to say is the Christian life isn't just being saved by grace. It's living by grace. Your life is to be lived on this relationship of grace and faith and trust in the Son of God. To do anything else is moving backwards, not forwards. I think that's one of the great tragedies of legalism, don't you think? Legalism gives the appearance of deeper spiritual maturity. But it's not. It's turning back to the weak and beggarly things. They're weak because they they don't have any strength. They're beggarly because they bestow no riches. All they can do is bring us back into bondage. And what kind of bondage? Paul gets very specific. Look at verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. Oh, you've heard that before, haven't you? Brother, you really want to be right with God? Then keep the Sabbath. You really want to be right with God? Then observe Lent. That will make you right with God. Friends, let me say it very clearly that Paul says as clearly here as he does in other passages of Scripture, that for the Christian, no day is above another. Every day is sacred and given to Jesus Christ. And if you want to keep the Sabbath, God bless you. Fine. Great. You just better not think that it makes you any more approved before God than I am. Or that you are, or anybody else. If God's put it on your conscience to keep it, great, keep it with all of your heart before God. But it doesn't make you any more approved because the issue of approval is settled in Jesus Christ, not in Sabbath keeping. You want to keep Lent 40 days before Easter? Give up chocolate for Lent, something like that? Hey, go for it. God bless you. God's put it on your conscience to do it, then go for it. Don't think it makes you any more approved before God. The issue of approval is settled in Jesus Christ, not not eating chocolate for 40 days. Not in observing a day or a month or a year or a season. That's the issue. And friends, Paul makes it so plain to us, plain, that liberty in Jesus Christ isn't about the, the sheet of rules. Legalism caters to that sheet of rules. He says, no. No, it's all, it's all about Jesus. Friends, you, you come to a higher plane of spirituality 
by drawing closer and closer to Jesus. Not by days and months and years. Not by ritual observance. That's where the Galatians were getting messed up. And look at the danger of it here in verse 11. Paul says very solemnly, I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Paul's fear is that this attraction to legalism will mean that his work among the Galatians will amount to nothing and end up being in vain. I think there's two things very interesting in verse 11. First of all, the word he uses there for labored. You know what it means in the original language Paul wrote in? It means to work to the point of exhaustion. Paul says, I really worked hard when I was among you Galatians to spread and to implant the gospel among you. You know what I love about that word? Is it shows us that grace didn't make Paul lazy. I mean, you think, hey, he's the apostle of grace, right? It's all about what the Lord does for us, not what we do for him. And what's the great fear? Oh, you start believing that. People get lazy for the Lord. Nobody want to obey God. Nobody want to serve him. Not Paul. Paul served more energetically than ever. He labored to the point of exhaustion. But why? To earn approval before God? No. Because God had done so much for him. It was out of gratitude. And isn't that to be the real motive for our Christian service? Gratitude for what the Lord has given us. Look, if you want to serve God out of some guilt trip, I got to score brownie points before God, maybe then I'll know God really loves me, then don't even bother. Recognize that all that's settled in Jesus Christ. But if you want to serve God out of tremendous gratitude for what he's given you in Jesus, then the doors are wide open. That was Paul. He says, I worked really hard. Second very sobering word there in verse 11. is that phrase he uses at the very end. Lest I have labored for you in vain. Paul looked at his work among the Galatians and he says, if these people slip back into legalism, it's like I didn't do anything among them. It's like it was in vain. And in this, Paul puts a choice between the Galatians and before us. We can have a living, a free relationship with God as a loving father based on what Jesus did for us and who we are in him or... We can try to please God by the best efforts of keeping the rules, living in bondage as slaves and not sons. Living that way makes the whole gospel as if it was in vain. It's not about what Jesus did for you. It's about what you do for him. I think one of the most striking examples of this from the pages of Christian history is this guy named John Wesley. man lived a couple hundred years ago, and he was the founder of the Methodist movement, both in England and as it spilled over here into America. It was a marvelous, marvelous revival and work of God in its day. And John Wesley had an interesting life. He was the son of a clergyman. He was trained and educated as a clergyman. He was orthodox and right on in what he believed. He was faithful in his morality, and he was full of good works. He did ministry in prisons, in sweatshops, and in slums. He gave food, clothing, and education to slum children. We talked about observing the Sabbath. John Wesley observed both Saturday and Sunday as a Sabbath. That's playing it safe, I think. (laughs) He went out as a missionary, sailed from England to the American colonies to serve as a missionary. And he studied his Bible, prayed and fasted, gave regularly. He was just the model of Christian devotion and discipline. And he wasn't even saved. 
You look at a man who does all those things and say, man, we should make him the pastor. But he wasn't even saved. All the time he was bound in the chains of his own religious efforts because he was trusting in what he could do to make himself right before God instead of trusting in what Jesus had done. So on the ship sailing back from America, back to England, after his missionary endeavors had sort of fizzled, he's on that ship and there they are in a terrible storm. And he's afraid. He's deathly afraid. And he's wondering, if I'm right with God, why am I so afraid? Then he saw some other Christians on the ship. They weren't afraid at all. Singing, trusting, just loving God. He looked at them and he was blown away. He said, they have something that I don't. One of those Christians who was so peaceful and joyous in the midst of that storm came up to Wesley and they said, now now, do you know that you're a believer? Do you know that Jesus Christ really died for you? He said, well, I know Jesus died for the sins of the world. He said, I hope that I'm saved. But he knew he didn't have more than just that, just a vague hope. When he came back to England, he went to the first meeting he could of those Christians. And when he went into that church and when he sat down in that meeting, he said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And God spoke to him through the message of the preacher. And he came to trust in Christ, in Christ only for salvation. And then he had the inner assurance that he was forgiven and saved and a son of God. He looked back on all his religious experience and activity before he was truly saved. And this is what he said. He said, I had even then the faith of a servant, though not that of a son. So what's it for you this morning? You know, I'm glad that you're here this morning. Some of you might be here as servants, not as sons. Now, I'm not talking about servants in the way that we're to serve one another. To one another, we're to be servants, right? But to God, we're to be sons. Friends, are you here this morning as a servant or as a son? Which word more properly describes your relationship with God? God wants to set you free from whatever it is that's bound you in those shackles and it made you more of a servant. And God looks down to you this morning and says, I want you to live with me as my son, as my daughter. You're my child, and I want that kind of intimate, close relationship with you. Maybe as I've been talking now this morning, you've noticed that you used to have a relationship with God that was more like a son. Now it's a lot more like a servant. See, I need to get back to that. I need to get back to the simplicity of a childlike faith in God and enjoy my place in his house. You can do that this morning. God wants you to. That's why he brought you here. So that you could be here when we went over Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Where Paul talks about it so beautifully and plainly. And the Holy Spirit spoke into your heart. So let's pray about it together right now, won't we?